Back in 2016, a few weeks after the presidential election, something very strange started happening in Cuba. A CIA officer got sick after hearing this weird, high-pitched noise in his home. Then a few more undercover agents started reporting the same thing. What felt like a beam of sound aimed directly at them. A pressure that wouldn't go away until someone opened a door. The United States started investigating. So did Cuba. But no one could figure out what was going on. It was a complete and utter mystery. good reporter, like a good detective, is always challenged by a mystery. Sebastian Rotella is a good reporter at ProPublica. And in this world of intelligence and national security, which I've been covering for a long time, there are a lot of secrets and few genuine mysteries. He and his colleague Tim Golden have spent the better part of a year investigating those strange incidents in Cuba that started in late 2016. I think we have to set the context, which is geopolitical, in which is the Obama administration in its final years undertakes this process of reaching out to Cuba and, and, and succeeding to a large extent in developing this rapprochement with Raul Castro's government. And in 2016, that really comes to fruition. For more than half a century, the sight of a U.S. president here in Havana would have been unimaginable. But... This is a new day. This is a nueva día. Diplomatic relations are fully established. Um, the embassy grows in size, including the presence of a small CIA station. So then there are two major events in the fall. There is, of course, the election of Donald Trump, which casts some question marks over this, this rapprochement, some shadow, because Trump's very clear position on, on this issue was that he thought that rapprochement was a mistake. And there's the death of Fidel Castro, which marks, uh, you know, an enormous moment in, in, in Cuban history. The ashes of Cuba's late leader, Fidel Castro, have reached their final destination after crossing the country. The three-day, 800-kilometer funeral procession had retraced in reverse Castro's route to seizing power in Havana to the city he launched his revolution six decades ago. And in the final weeks of 2016, these incidents begin. Three or four CIA officers based in Havana. These officers in their homes feel an intense sensation of pressure uh, accompanied by a sort of a shrill, piercing sound, which feels almost like a beam, a ray of sound and sensation. Often at night, sometimes while they're in bed, asleep, in their homes or their hotel rooms here in Cuba. But if they got up out of bed, if they left the room where they went, it would stop if they walked back into where they had felt this incident, this attack as they described it. They feel like they can step out of it or into it and experience this sensation. It was quite overwhelming. And now they're, they're experiencing a series of symptoms. Dizziness, pain in the ear. Hearing loss, headaches, and difficulty sleeping. Some suffered traumatic brain injury. 
they assumed that it was some kind of harassment, perhaps with some kind of sonic weapon. There are things like that out there. Or because there is so much electronic monitoring and because Cuba is very aggressive and very good at monitoring but doesn't always have the most up-to-date technology, that it was some kind, perhaps some kind of monitoring equipment that had malfunctioned and, and unintentionally had caused these sensations. As the symptoms get worse and as these incidents continue into the new year, the charge d'affaires uh, of the embassy brings it to the attention of the Cubans. The Cubans say, in fact, there's even a conversation between uh, Raul Castro, the president, and the charge d'affaires, Jeffrey de Laurentiis, which is rather extraordinary, which the Cubans assure them they don't know what's going on and they want to help them get to the bottom of it. These officers, they go to the nurse at the embassy and then they are flown to Miami. There they find the, you know, symptoms which are described as comparable to a concussion without a concussion. So this is kind of like, you know, immaculate concussion. You know, we don't know what happened. And yet they look almost exactly like the patients we would see in a concussion clinic. Dizziness, headaches, difficulty uh, in memory, pain in the ear. The, the diagnosis is not clear. The, the medical part is as much a mystery as... Who did this? How they did it? There's no sense. They didn't see anyone suspicious outside. They didn't find any kind of equipment. The Americans don't detect anything, and the Cubans assure them that they're not doing it. This remains a secret for the first couple of months because it was seen in sort of the cloak-and-dagger arena. But at a certain point, as the incidents continue uh, toward the end of March of 2017, it's decided that because one of the intelligence officers tells a diplomat who's not an intelligence officer about it and plays a recording of the sound, and this diplomat listens to the sound and is convinced that it is very similar to the noise that he's been hearing for months in his garden outside his house, which he thought and his next-door neighbors thought were uh, insects, cicadas, which if you've ever heard them in, in the tropics in Cuba and Brazil and places like that, are very loud and very metallic sounding. And so I could imagine that it does sound like insects, but it's true that, you know, it, it has a remarkably sort of metallic and mechanical sound. The U.S. Embassy in Havana has played these recordings for Americans who are working there so they know what to listen to. After it's made public, many more people come forward and some, they find them to have nothing wrong. But, you know, these people are being flown to Miami and diagnosed at this clinic. Now it's a mix of people who work in different roles in the American embassy. And the cases are different. Some people, particularly the intelligence officers, felt an immediate dramatic sensation and pretty immediate symptoms. Others heard sounds and came forward and then were diagnosed with symptoms, but without having had some dramatic incident precipitated. And there are also a group of Canadians who live in proximity to some of the American victims who also come forward once they hear about it. And there's a group of them, uh, about eight of them, who are found to have had uh, symptoms as well. Certainly, at this point, most people are convinced that it's something intentional and something malicious. Why does it keep happening? And there are a couple of reasonably dramatic incidents in April where a young diplomat who is living in a hotel is awoken by a sensation that's very dramatic and feels kind of paralyzed by it. And there's a doctor who comes in also to actually to work on this case who has a similar experience. Now it's even more dramatic for the leadership of the embassy because they say to the Cubans, these people aren't living here. These people just came in. This seems much more targeted and specific. In August of 20, 
17. There are a couple more incidents, which brings the total of incidents to 24. And soon after that, the decision is made by the U.S. government to do what's called a, a withdrawal of, of most of the diplomats and, and their families. The Trump administration announced Friday that it is pulling more than half of its staff out of the American embassy in Havana. This comes after diplomats and staff suffered mysterious health attacks that caused minor brain injuries. Cuba has denied any involvement in the incidents. And you have to remember that this is in the context of the Trump administration, which has come in and decided to roll back to dismantle a lot of the accords that have been reached and, and take a much tougher stand toward the Cubans. And what the Trump administration says is it stops short of accusing the Cubans of actually doing this, but it says we blame the Cubans for not protecting our diplomats. Why does this keep happening? And meanwhile, the CIA obviously is looking into it. The FBI is looking into it. And certain uh, people in sort of the, the hawkish political spectrum, like Senator Rubio, has been very uh, assertive in his comments about this and, and in saying that the Cubans, as he said publicly, the Cubans either did it or they know who did it. But if you're a United States government employee in Havana, the Cuban government knows when you came, when you left, and where you are at every single moment. The idea that an environment like that, like Cuba, especially in Havana, an American, 22 Americans could be attacked, and the Cuban government not know who did it, is absurd. So what the hell happened to these people? Sonic attacks, microwaves, lasers, or maybe it was nothing at all? That's next on Today Explained. Boy Erased is in movie theaters across the country right now, and Unerased, the podcast, is literally wherever you find your podcasts right now. It's sort of an accompaniment to the movie. The movie's about Garrett Conley, who, as a kid in Arkansas, was stuck between his strict father and his unforgiving God and got sent to a conversion camp to turn him from gay to straight. Unerase the podcast tells his story in its first episode, but also stories from the other hundreds of thousands of people who have been forced into conversion therapy. It's hosted by Jad Abumrad. He is the Don behind Radiolab and More Perfect. Check it out wherever you find your podcasts. Sebastian, all this sounds very sort of throwback, very Cold War. Mystery attacks in a foreign nation, diplomats, CIA denials. Has anything like this ever happened before? Specifically like this, no. There are some things that come close. Starting in the 1950s, uh, 60s and 70s, during the, the height of the Cold War, uh, the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, of course, was a, the prime target for for the Soviet Union uh, for surveillance. And, and, and so there was use of microwave technology that was used to turn on a listening device with, inside the embassy or used to jam uh, communications, things like that. There were suspicions that uh, the diplomats had gotten sick because of that. So that's one thing that comes close. 
harassment of diplomats there has certainly been. Sure. Right? And that happens in places like China and places like Russia. But it's much more along the lines of surveillance, of people breaking into people's houses again and leaving some kind of calling card to make it clear they were there, you know, just to mess with them. I've heard that British diplomats in Moscow, that people would come in, turn on the gas in their kitchens and leave it on. Hmm. Pets being poisoned. That was something that happened in the height of the Cold War in Cuba. So it kind of comes with the territory of being a diplomat in certain countries. So harassment, yes. Incidents like this with these kinds of symptoms and these kinds of repercussions, no. How about since the fall of 2016, when you start to see these incidents happening in Cuba, do they happen anywhere else in the world? Do we see similar things happening? There's a series of reports of concerned employees at the consulate in, in, in Guangzhou, China, of yeah. US, U.S. employees who feel that they have heard things or experienced symptoms like this. The investigation hasn't discovered anything that suggests that, you know, that, that there's any connection to Cuba um, there is quite a bit of skepticism, I think, about, the, about the, the incident in China. And what is also dramatic, and some of the diplomats who are in Cuba point out, is that the reaction of the U.S. government is much different. They've praised the Chinese for their response and their help, you know, not only criticizing the Cubans, but, you know, dramatically changing the relationship and pulling out most of the diplomats and leaving, you know, what's, what's essentially a skeleton staff. They did some bad things. In Investigators have not determined who they are or what those bad things were, but are considering whether some sort of sonic weapon was involved. Is sonic warfare a real thing? Is there a history of sonic attacks? Initially, they were thought to be sonic weapons, but that has been discarded. In other words, there are weapons that can be used for crowd control. You must clear the street immediately. There are high-pitched sounds that can, you know, sort of stun people and things like that. That was the first thesis, but that has been discarded. So there are different kinds of technology, uh, electromagnetic pulsing and lasers, and there's this idea of microwave, but... There are problems with all those theories. Every theory that somebody comes up with, there's a problem. All right, well, let's go through them all. Sonic warfare, the problem with that one? The problem with that one, there's no sonic weapon that can cause the symptoms that they thought they could cause. Okay. And also you would have to have an apparatus of pretty remarkable size. All right, microwave radiation? Microwave radiation, the problem is, from what we're told, that in order for microwaves to have caused these symptoms, they would have had to have been so intense they would have actually burned or the people would have felt great heat. And no one felt heat. And no one did. And lasers, same situation? The idea of electromagnetic or what are called neuroweapons, which are electromagnetic pulsing or hypersonic technology, and there we're told by experts that that in some ways those those fit the description, but there's a problem, which is that in order to to work to have been to, to deliver this, they would have to be in the room. They'd have to be close within the house of the person. They would have have to have broken into these homes or hotel rooms, set up the device, used it, and then theoretically gone in and retrieved it because no trace of a device was found. So again, the idea that someone was able to do that in these settings, both with the U.S. increasingly on guard for it, the Cubans having the security apparatus they do, there's a problem with that too. You know, I have one simple request, and that is to have sharks with frickin' laser beams attached to their heads. 
One thesis is that there's a new weapon that we don't know about. That is not microwave radiation, lasers, or sonic? Not At least not with the, in the ways we know them to be. Okay. They obviously think about foreign uh, third-party actors, the, the Russians being the most likely suspect. Our sources say the latest incident suggests Russia might be involved in the attacks. It's known that Russia in part of its aggressive global campaign of recent years, one of the places where it's really tried to reestablish itself is in Latin America. But they don't find either direct evidence of the presence of hostile intelligence services doing something like this. They don't have a weapon. And they don't find, which is the most remarkable thing as time goes on, circumstantial evidence. Usually you have things like chatter, you have intercepts, you have the movement of operatives, you have people talking about something they've done or communicating about it. That is hard to hide. For example, on the Russian thesis, look at the Russian pattern in recent years. Yes, they've done some audacious things like interfering in the U.S. elections with cyber attacks and fake news, poisoning a former spy in England. But in all those cases, they were good enough to get it done, but they weren't good enough to hide their tracks. They left a pretty dramatic trail. Is it possible that the Russians or any other foreign service in a place like Cuba could do repeated attacks like this and leave no trace whatsoever? And again, the one thesis that keeps coming up, which would explain some aspects of this mystery, is the idea that it was unintentional, that it was surveillance technology that failed, which would explain why Cubans have denied it in the sense they're what they're saying. If that thesis is true, the Cubans are denying it because they didn't do it intentionally and maliciously. So they're telling a half-truth, so to speak. So what you're saying is after over a year of these incidents after it involving multiple countries, multiple agencies of the United States, multiple in-depth reports from organizations like ProPublica, the New York Times, this is still a mystery. This is still a mystery, and there's a great chasm between the way parts of the government talk about it and the reality on the ground or the way people talk to you about it in private. For example, the White House and the State Department use the term attacks. The FBI and others in the uh, intelligence law enforcement community are very um, careful not to use that term for the simple reason they just don't have that evidence. So there's this dissonance between the public discourse where people are talking about 26 attacks and the reality where, you know, there's not even enough evidence, particularly, you know, the FBI, which takes sort of the, the point of view that what can I prove in court? They don't have a weapon. They don't have a suspect. They don't have circumstantial evidence. They don't have people talking about the crime. So they're going to, you know, they're going to stop short of that. The other thing that is, I think, remarkable about the case and which only increases the doubt and the ambiguity is that there is a real division that is only intensified among the diplomats who are on the island. That is, among the people who were victims, the patients, and their colleagues and their friends who were skeptical from the beginning and have become increasingly more skeptical that their colleagues were the victims of some kind of attack. What some people think is that perhaps the initial incidents may have been caused by something man-made and that some of the, the later ones, as people became aware of it, could have been the result of stress or psychological factors. We know so little still about what happened here. But one thing we know is that on the eve of Cuban-American rapprochement, something happened that threw the whole thing off. I, I think that's right. And I think, you know, those who uh, are suspicious would say, you know, as often happens with crimes of state, timing means a lot. So those who think that this is intentional by someone would say, isn't it remarkable that Trump is elected, 
uh, Fidel Castro dies and these incidents begin. So there are people think that can't be coincidental. It just all seems like a movie in search of an ending. It would be a great movie. I guess the problem would be, you know, you need a hero, you need a villain, you need a, a weapon, and all those things are kind of lacking right now. Sebastian Rotella is a senior reporter at ProPublica. I'm Sean Ramos for him. This is Today Explained. Spencer Hall, you're the host of the It Seems Smart podcast from the Vox Media Podcast Network and SB Nation. And new episodes drop on Tuesday. What can people expect in their feeds today? They can expect part one of a two-part episode. You ask what sporting event could be so insanely either corrupt or sideways or askance or chaotic that it would merit two parts. That'd be the Tour de France. Really? The bikes? I like to call it French NASCAR. Yeah. (laughs) I also enjoy uh, referring to it as the most consistently enhanced sporting event in the history of humanity. It's not just that the Tour de France has involved some episodes of cheating, pushing the rules, or let's put it this way, uh, innovation. Uh It's that it's involved it from the start it's been consistent. It's been spectacular. It's been tragic and tragicomic. Okay, so a two-parter about the Tour de France. It starts today, and I imagine it concludes, what, next week, huh? Anywhere they get their podcasts, uh, just from the Vox Media Podcast Network and from uh, our site, sbnation.com. <laughs> 